and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Here's your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I am your host, Fred, and that great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. And today, uh, we continue onward. Um, we are actually going to do a little bit of a blast from the past here, giving you a double feature of Final Rune Productions. That's my own theater company's uh, shows from 2007. Um, every now and again, kind of wax nostalgic, uh, dig through previous shows. So uh, we're going to hear actually two from 2007, which was uh, the year that I founded Radio Drama Revival. Uh, one was produced in the spring and one was produced that fall. Um, the pieces, uh, we're going to lead with Fall of the Hero, which was the first and to this date only uh, sort of hard fantasy piece that I did, um, which I, I think is a shame in, in general. I don't hear all that much uh, sort of hard uh, fantasy audio drama, um, you know, the exception uh, the Witch Hunter Chronicles, uh, audio epics. Uh, the, their pieces tend to have this wonderful uh, gothic feel to them. And we're doing a, a piece that I recently recorded in studio a few weeks ago, uh, the, the Journey with Strange Bedfellows uh, with Jancy Jones, Forest Rose Productions, and a great cast here in Maine is going to be sort of light uh, audio gothic horror fantasy steampunky kind of stuff uh, but not not you know uh, dragons and knights and kind of stuff which I, I have a soft part in my heart uh, for, for that um, you as listener uh, maybe maybe do as well I mean the the nice thing about audio theater is that you can um, you know get a dragon into your soundscape much more easily than you can do a, 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 the voice of smog um, you know even if you have Benedict Cumberbatch you don't really need all the CGI honestly do you uh, so that's my take at least so uh, follow the hero sort of twist on the the, the, the genre of fantasy and then um, Tales from Williamsville which was a stage play uh, with a little bit of the final rune adaptation touch uh, by my friend John Coons who has gone on to do great things uh, outside of uh, you know musically in his in his career um, and this is one of his uh, twisted little tales the early uh, early days when we we're all still college students so I uh, hope you enjoy these two uh we are going to sort of change gears quite a lot after this we've got some real top-notch productions geared up later this month we'll have jonathan mitchell back from the truth uh, judith kampner um from the bbc uh or she's sort of not on, uh, as much on the bbc now but a seasoned uh, uh newscaster and producer uh, for the bbc and others coming up uh, a little bit of uk influence on radio drum revival and um, then we'll be going into sort of a a, a long uh, summer serial snooze so I uh, hope you enjoyed these two from Final Rune, and we'll be back with you next week on Radio Drum Revival. Final Rune Productions presents The Fall of the Hero by Frederick Greenhalge. Long ago, in a different age, there was a hero, a stately knight known through the lands as his king's hand of justice and slayer of all breeds of monsters, a proud warrior known as Sir Grace. Boy! Y yes, my lord? Where is my steed? I commanded you to retrieve her ten minutes ago. Sorry, my lord, but you also commanded me to retrieve thy sword and shield, which I have for you now. And what did you do? Stand before the pond to see how you look while wielding them? Hand the blade to me. Uh, of course, my lord. Bring me my steed and tarry no longer. I have a date with a wizard and I shall not be late. The morning sun struck the shield and armor of Sir Grace as he stood impatiently. His coat of arms, a lion swallowing a snake, emblazoned the shield of three generations of the king's mightiest champion. His blade, 
Redeemer, felt ogres and wyverns. His mithril armor withstood the claws of harpies and the breath of dragons. Friend and foe alike bowed to Grace's imperturbable strength, courage, and honor. Yet today was different. In all the realms, there was only one thing that Grace feared, and that was magic users. Their power derived from a source that Grace knew must be evil. And today, he came at the beckoning of the most infamous of all, Roland Fierro de Arcanus. Ah, Nightshade, you look so strong and well this morning. She's fed, rested, and shod? Yes, my lord. Well, a penny for your troubles, then. Hey up! Roland Fierro de Arcanus was not evil. However, his skill with the arcane and role dictated by the fates made his name one that caused the peasants to shudder. This saddened him, but he stood by his role with unwavering resolution. Good, evil, they were just opposite sides of a coin, phrases that balanced out the other in the unseen order of the universe. Roland accepted his role as mediator in the balance, forsaking human life and emotions, gaining the intangible gifts of the cosmos instead. Today he needed to test another figure that tipped the scales. While nature needs heroes as well as villains, Roland fretted that one may too easily turn into the other. Great heroes may become tyrants, and if that happened, the whole world might spiral into chaos. No one was immune from the temptation birthed from their virtue. And as Roland peered down at the road-weary hero from his looming tower, he wondered. Perhaps this will be the one. We are in great need of a messiah. Vile creature must live here. The thick stench of rot hung in the air, radiating from a vast swamp that surrounded the narrow path Sir Grayson trod. In all directions were twisted trees, nodded like men stretching out in their dying poses. The monolithic tower rose at the end of the path, a single mass of slate-gray stone that disappeared into a haze of low-lying clouds. It had no doors, no windows, no distinguishing features at all. It was so unimpressive that it may have well as been remarkable. Pardon, Nightshade, but you'll need to remain here until I return. Trod not far in this evil place. Wizard! So Wilhelm Grace comes at your calling. Slayer of the dragon Zirgreed, and you lost the giant. Defender of King Herod, who has named me arm of his justice and fire of his vengeance. Damn you! I will not be taken for a fool. A door-sized chunk of wall dissolved, revealing only darkness within. I shall see you at the top then. What was that? Go, 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 go. Blast! Go, 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 go. 
It's not What trickery is this? He pulled a torch from his rucksack, which lit of its own accord. The fire spat and danced and cast dismal shapes against the dark blue walls. The shadows grew into contorted, agonized bodies. No, no, not As Grace strode to the upward staircase. No, no, no! Glowing stacks of gold blinded Grace as he finished his ascent. Diamonds, emeralds, and rubies spilled over enormous stacks of riches that reached to the ceiling, burying gem-encrusted scepters, necklaces, and rings. I get it's all for the taking. Anything you want, it's yours. But she's a king, an emperor, who could own your own army. A kingdom, your own kingdom. An empire, all your own. With any maiden you can imagine. Enough! The next chamber glowed red and caused Grace's blood to boil. Against the walls were naked shapes sprawled in every form of lovemaking. The air clawed him like excited hands as he staggered across the chamber. Let me fulfill all your dreams. Even the ones you won't admit. <laughs> Burn, all of you! And then, it was dark. The flame on his torch ate itself, and Grace cast it aside in disgust. A cursed magic! Grace was suddenly disoriented in this strangest of the chambers. He stood still, yet he could not help feel that he was moving, though in what direction he could not tell. He staggered forward and realized his feet were not even on the ground. Let go of me! Let go! <laughs> Fiendish devil! Step out so I might smite thee! You couldn't smite a roach without stabbing it in the behind, could you? <laughs> you couldn't squash a bug unless you gave it the drop! Watch your words, little villain! I have snapped an ogre's neck with my bare hands! Ah, where are your bare hands now? Grace stepped back a moment, having hardly noticed his shining blade, Redeemer was in his hands. The holy, blue light illuminated a path to another stairwell, but he ignored it in a furious search for the imp. I'll skewer you and roast your hide before feeding it to rats! Rats! <laughs> I bet you know a few of them! Grace spun and the blue glow dodged off a shape darting around the circular chamber. His split-second judgment was enough to detect the speed at which the creature was trotting and aim his blade to wreck it. You must use the rats to do the dirty things no woman wants to do with you. Ah! <laughs> uh, uh, you got me! Enough! Enough! You'll pay for your trickery, demon! No, please! Please let me be! Go on! Not before you burn in hell! wiry creature stared at Grace with features all too human as its life poured out on the black tiles. Grace threw it off his blade in a dismissive gesture. Your next wizard. Grace ascended a staircase that wound longer and narrower than all the others. 
The more he walked, the more he felt that he was not moving at all, as though he were treading through quicksand. But still, he walked. He fought a feeling of vertigo as he crossed the threshold into a vast observatory with commanding views of the kingdom. Across the stone floor stood a figure, shrouded in gray robes, almost a statue himself, save for golden eyes that glowed from within a heavy cow. Its stringy fingers wore no rings, carried no staves. He could imagine a skeleton supported its weight, but the voice of Roland Fierro de Arcanus was no skeleton's. I bid you greetings, Sir Grace. I have heard great things of you. Indeed. The slaying of the Chimera Maldun, or the defeat of the Trolls at Silverdale, maybe the death of the Ogre, Cargra. I have come at your call, O wizard, but I fear you no more than the beast I have slain in my days prior. Brave you may be, but without manners. Remember that you are a guest in my home. And what a way to treat your guests! How do you account for the trickery you've showered upon me? How do you account for the pitiless slaying of my familiar? A worthy fate that shall soon be yours, if you do not stop weaving your silvery web. As I have my answer, Sir Knight, so you shall have yours. I invited you here to test your virtue and you have answered abundantly clear. Then, let us dance the dance, and I shall cut you down like I did your pathetic man-thing. So be it, warrior, for time tells us your kind shall never be at harmony with magic. I shall have you by the neck! Tu lamos dikeras, mea que abros de brevo. No! The knight awoke in a dim barn without dignity. He lay sprawled in a mound of hay, his ragged wounds patched but naked, save for a burlap sack that covered his loins. He leapt up, and pain roared up his side. His mind drowned with disorientation, his knees quaked. He grabbed at the burlap sack as it dropped, struggling to keep the last tatters of his pride. The door at the far end of the humble barn opened, letting in light and a fair-haired maiden, her arms heavy with a tray of fruits and oatmeal. Oh, kind sir, you have awoken at last. I had begun to worry. Where, where am I? How, how did I get here? Tell me these things, woman! My, my lord, 
Please do not be so harsh. I have tended you for weeks. Then you would know what has happened to my sword and my armor. No, my lord, I would not. Oh, don't play dumb with me, woman. One moment I was locked in combat with a terrible mage, moments from victory, holding the Holy Blade Redeemer high, and the next I wake up to some poor wench in a stable. This is an outrage! Outrage, my lord. I found you a disheveled, wretched brute, naked in a ditch, and took you to the shelter of my home. Here I have slaved over you, hiding you from my father, praying that you awake. And when you do, all you have to offer me are insults and wild stories. Be gone, accursed man. Pardon me, my lady. Pray, forgive me, and let me be at your service. Let me do all that I may to reconcile my terrible words. Let me speak to my father. The maiden's father, a wiry, aging widower, was not pleased to see a ruggedly handsome man appear at his doorstep, nor to hear his daughter plead to let this man stay under their roof. Yet, the summer was coming, and he could hardly attend to the tasks around the house, let alone the farm. So, Sir Grace's accommodations in the barn were extended till harvest time. Grace soon discovered that wielding a plow and shovel was no easier than his sword and shield. With the strength of an ox, he plowed, dug, chopped, sawed, and nailed. He pulled weeds, sanded edges, sharpened rusty tools. And as he toiled in the summer's sun, it was not only corn and beans that grew, but love. Though he slept on a threadbare bed and slaved in the dirt from dusk till dawn, Sir Grace was prouder than when he fought any knoll or giant. The maiden was as surprised as he with the dedication with which he fulfilled his promise, and soon they both knew that he had repaid his debt in full several times over. The father, being no fool to men and maidens, bought a fierce dog and tied it between the rooms of the two lovers. But no beast could come between hearts drunk by the September moon. <coughs> my lord. Ah, oh, my lady. What may I do for you? Keep shoveling. Don't let my father see that we've been scheming. Very well. <coughs> Have we been scheming? If we may, my lord. I was hoping that perhaps tonight we could steal away. There is a beautiful grove not far from here, where we may love by the light of the moon. And you would welcome me, sir? By any means, my lord. <clears throat> I am yours. Then shall I rouse you? Meet me by the edge of the woods, an hour after nightfall. I dare not bear a lantern, but I shall wait for you there. And I shan't be late. Sir Grace found it difficult to shovel for the rest of the day, and when the father looked to see what he had left unfinished, Grace could only account that the sun at last had taken a toll on him. Though Grace had yet to finish a day's work less than that of ten men, the father accepted the excuse solemnly, and they spent the remainder of the afternoon rolling dice. Through dinner, a porridge stew with lamb, Grace fought to not stare too long at the maiden, and instead to be good company with her father, who was uneasy about the coming harvest time, and if he should have the hands to take down the crops, which were to be thrice or more what he had grown in the past. Grace muttered an evasive answer, and the dinner ended quietly. Grace bade an early retirement to his loft in the barn. The minutes stretched on like hours as Grace impatiently paced the room, cursing himself for being so easily perturbed. He's been a good lord to me, knowing me not from a vagabond. To violate his trust would breach my honor, yet... Damn it! The woman is too sweet to resist! 
He agonized until the appointed time came, when he crept outside without hesitation. A half-moon lit the path to the edge of the forest, across the well-tended fields and through the tendrils of thin mist. He walked boldly through the night, but she was not there. Lady, are you out here? Don't play me as the fool. I wait where you told me. Is this some game then? Am I meant to chase you into the forest? Very well. Lady? Lady! Where did you go? Go now. Go now. What trickery is this? Grace froze as his eyes adjusted to the interior of this parcel of the woods. Just past the threshold, the trees became twisted, barren abominations, their roots knotted in damp, swampy ground. And beyond it, deeper in the forest, he could see a figure moving towards him. Curse me to the pits of the nether. The figure wore his armor and bared his naked blade, Redeemer, in a gauntleted hand. The mithril radiated glorious blue in the half-moon, yet it was hard to tell where the apparition ended and the mist began. Fiend, those are my possessions, given to me by friends to celebrate my glorious deeds. Return them to me or you shall pay. My lord? My lord, where are you? Who are you speaking with? He briefly glanced over his shoulder and suddenly found he had no orientation in the dim mist, only a clear line of sight to the mysterious apparition, who now stopped and stood boldly. <laughs> so be it, demon! I shall tear your throat from your neck and send you back to hell! No, my knight! He turned his head to see the maiden in a thin slip, fighting her way through the branches that clawed at her like searching hands. The slip tore off her and she stretched her arms out to him, shivering and naked in the misty night. Forget these trinkets and come to me. Let us live a simple life. Don't kill yourself for blind pride. Foolish woman, you know nothing of battle. See now the greatness of my glory. Grace lunged towards the figure which fought back with inhuman strength, flinging him across a snarled branch and into the mud. It swung the blade down, but Grace rolled out of the way and rose back to his feet, wielding a heavy stump. The figure swung the blade again and Grace threw the stump solidly against his chest. The figure staggered back a moment, and Grace lunged again, this time throwing the aberration against the ground. They struggled, locked in combat like two furious rams, until Grace howled a battle cry into the air and ripped Redeemer loose from the hands of the creature. In a solid, unthinking motion, he swept the blade straight down through the figure's chest, watching as the dark, golden eyes flickered briefly before fading away. Ha ha! My love, I have recovered my honor, my armor. Surely now you shall take my hand in marriage. You have witnessed that I am a titan among men. He turned to her, but she did not share his revelry, but stood there hugging her shivering naked body. 
her eyes cast to the dank earth. Then why have you fallen, Sir Grace? Dispel your toil-earned humility for avarice and pride? Do you not see who you have truly slain? Her words cut him deeper than hard steel. He looked down on his chest and groaned. Blood spat from the same spot where he sank his blade into the apparition. No, my lady, this is, this is trickery. I am, I'm yours. His blurring vision could barely focus on her as the woods shifted into another reality altogether. The mist receded into the dank waters of a swamp. The proud trees twisted into agonized shapes, and in the distance, looming over it all, was a dull, gray tower. Another figure emerged from the shadows. The maiden's father, but no. It was the wizard. He placed a hand on the shoulder of the shivering maiden and met the eyes of the hero just once before glancing away. The last blood spilled from Sir Grace's body now, and as he moved to speak to the wizard, he saw in horror his arms turned to wood. His feet root themselves in the swamp waters as the moss hungrily slurped his blood. But his last words were lost to the cry of the awakening wind, a wind which rose from the belly of the earth and spilled up across the mountains and plains, beaches and tundra. The wind echoed and danced across the land, praising the humble magician who had restored the balance once more. Fall of the Hero was written, directed, and produced by Frederick Greenhalgh. You heard Ian Carlson as the narrator, Philip Hobby as Sir Grace, Frederick Greenhalgh as Squire and Voices, Corey Anderson as Roland D'Arcanus, the Imp and the Apparition, Mia Perrin as Voices and the Maiden, and Andriana Colucci as Voices. Original score composed by Michael Bowden, sound effects by SoundDogs.com, and recorded live. Special thanks to WMPG, Greater Portland, Maine's community radio station. For more information on Final Rune Productions, visit us on the web, www.finalrune.com. That's F-I-N-A-L-R-U-N-E.com. Final Rune Productions presents Tales from Williamsville, a story by John Coons, adapted for audio by Frederick Greenhalgh. Welcome to Williamsville, a town of single-family homes, above-average incomes, two-car garages, and more Joneses than Fifth Avenue. The illustrious history of Williamsville began with the Treaty of 1742, when Joseph R. Williams I, a destitute Irishman on the run from the law, got the local Indian chief to sign a treaty handing the land over to him one late night over two bottles of Finnegan's Finest. The modest start to Williamsville was in baskets and beaver pelts. Their rise to fame the great textile mills of the late 19th century, and a gracious end to this time of boozing and caterwauling came as the Great Depression ripped the guts out of the industry and left the ugly downtown to rot as post-war sprawl took hold. 
Oh, it's only been up, up, up for Williamsville in the last 50 years, though many old-timers will tell you that nothing really changes around here. It's a small place, a pleasant place, a great place to raise your kids, but not a place without its stories. The story today begins with Michael Burbank, data entry clerk at the local feed store for the last seven years, a position he slid into after his community college internship. Yet, a steady income, benefits, and a 401k plan did little to assuage Michael's Damocles-like sense of guilt. Michael, it hardly looks like you opened the cover of this one. It all started ten years ago at the library. Uh, uh sure I did, Mrs. Jaworski, see? You probably downloaded those notes off the internet. You've been pretending to read the summer reading list, haven't you? Well, I... I... Now, how do uh, you ever expect to pass the SATs if you don't start reading now? Why, you'll never get into a good college, let alone your ridiculous ambition to be a writer. But, but Mrs. Jaworski, I've been trying Only to... Only losers try. Stop wasting my time. Ah! Ever since that childhood infraction, Michael committed himself to reading every single volume in the looming stacks, a task that would be better suited to Sisyphus. There are too many stupid books. No one can read them all. Not that any of them are good, anyway. Michael may not have met his erudite expectations, but he knew when he was lying to himself. I should read more. And with that, the cycle would begin again. He'd compile a reading list and read more vigilantly than a conspiracy theorist. But it always ended up like a French novel. Sadly, and yet true to himself, he never reached his lofty goal. Stupid, 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 stupid! The sheer population of books reminded him of how little he had accomplished compared to everyone else. I've never finished this series, and and I've never finished even one section of this stupid library, and this is one stupid library in the whole stupid world! Worst of all, he knew he'd never write a book. No, that kind of immortality was reserved for those with far more gumption than he. Even if that book sold just five copies... Three of them to my mother. It would be something permanent, a lasting contribution to society. Yet, he knew he'd never be good enough to write a single paragraph. It was this guilt that led Michael to arson. But we'll get to that part of the story later. Twenty-five cents, and that's my final offer. Yes, Mrs. Tweeter. That's what the sign says. Mom said not to charge too much. And not a penny more. You can't rickshaw me into more than, oh... Fifty cents. Oh, of course, Mrs. Tweeter. I'd never think of... That settles it. Here's a dollar. Uh, well, thank you, Mrs. Tweeter. Slick fish little brat. Neither the girl nor her mom could ever decipher the incident of arsenic and old lace. The VHS Abigail Tweeter, or Abba Tweeter, as she was called in the adult circles, had insisted on haggling over at the Labor Day yard sale. No one on the block suspected Miss Abigail Tweeter's carefully hidden secret. Abigail Tweeter was entertaining nightly. But if Abigail Tweeter had the best-kept secret in Williamsville, Rick Lovely had the worst. Hey, what can I do for you? You, uh, rent by the hour? (laughs) Sure do, if you pay cash. Rick Lovely. Rick owned Lovely's One Stop, Lovely's Motel, and 18.7% of the rest of Williamsville. He drove a Lincoln Town Car with $2,000 chrome rims, lived in a house dubbed a ludicrous display of opulence by the Williamsville Coronet, and had a different Hawaiian shirt for every day of the year. He inherited all this from his father, who met a premature end for reasons that eluded only the most naive in Williamsville. Reasons related to his... other profession. Rick Lovely, the man everyone loved to hate in Williamsville. The man with the omnipresent smile that didn't so much beam like sunshine, but 
glimmer like the edge of a knife. Which brings us to Helen Bintliff, queen of the housewives, empress of the suburbs, alpha among the pack of mothers that patrolled Williamsville's streets. Indeed, Helen Bentliff was a legend among Williamsville's mothers. She's got eyes like eagles. The cooking skills of Julia Child. The schedule of a head of state. The investment portfolio of a New York stockbroker. And the grin of Rosie the Riveter. And with six children, she also had a uterus capable of passing a Buick. To Helen, nothing was a challenge. It's a modern age, and I'm a modern woman. You have to keep up with the times. Go, 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 you know. A little coffee here, a little catnap there, and in the middle there are soccer games, small trips, business lunches, night classes towards my master's degree, house cleaning, church socials, committee meetings, piano recitals, and making the best bisque this side of the zen. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Stewarding this medley of upstanding citizens was the mayor, Joe Williams the Eleventh. Most people would call Joe Williams a good mayor. Or at least a fine mayor. An average mayor, at the very least. You couldn't find anything wrong with Joe Williams, with his moderate height, average weight, middle-aged, fair wife, 2.5 children, and dog. No one could say anything bad about the man who lived in a modest house with the same mailbox as everyone else, who received as much junk mail as the rest. And it was this, more than any virtue, that kept Joe Williams in office for the last 13 years. I put the Williams in Williamsville. Joe Williams was as comfortable as an old pair of sneakers. After all, the people had had a Joe for mayor since Williamsville's origins. He was practically tradition. And nothing made the people in Williamsville more comfortable than tradition. Though it wasn't tradition so much as routine that found Helen Bentliff shopping at the Piggly Wiggly that Tuesday afternoon. Attention shoppers! Don't miss the great pickle sale in aisle 13. Three for one sweet pickles, four dills for a dollar. Buy one, get one free of your favorite kinds of relish. Tuesday was two-for-one coupon day, and Helen charged down the aisles with her arsenal of coupons as if she was trying to repel the Germans. She was like an Olympian in the grocery store, and was hoping today to break her record 58.4 minutes of shopping time and steal a victory nap before picking the kids up from soccer practice. But as she wheeled around aisle 13, disaster struck. Oh, Helen. Oh, hi, Abitweeter. I, uh, didn't see you Now there. that's all right, Helen. These aisles just get smaller and smaller over the years. Isn't that right? Now I was just... Have you seen the sale on these pickles? Why, it's practically robbery. Back in my day, pickles were only a nickel. Can you believe it? A pickle for a nickel! Time sure have changed. Now if you'd excuse me. Wait. You don't have any teeth. How can you eat pickles? Oh, I manage. What, by sucking on them? Like I said, I was just leaving. Ta-ta! Helen had accidentally come closer to Abigail's secret than anyone yet. Abigail thanked her lucky stars that Helen hadn't taken the time to look in her cart, filled as it was with a bottle of peach schnapps, two filet mignons, a spool of rope, whipped cream, and six jars of the biggest pickles she could find. Tonight was a big night for Abigail Tweeter, the anniversary of the first night that Fred Stoops, the hapless mailman, had brought her a misplaced Sears catalog and stumbled right into her arms. 365 days of geriatric gyrations later, it was time to celebrate, and no one and nothing could ruin it for her, or her name wasn't Abigail Gertrude Tweeter, which it was, wasn't it? Meanwhile, Helen Bintliff quickly forgot about the incident in the grocery store and grudgingly missed her nap to pick up the kids, cook dinner, shower, and show up for the PTA meeting ten minutes ahead of time. You see, in Williamsville, if you wanted to get something done, you didn't go to the town meeting, you went to the PTA meeting. 
because if you wanted the delirious enthusiasm of a southern revival gathering and more wild ideas than a network TV writer's room, you couldn't find a more captive audience than the PTA. After all, just about any cause justified the industrial-grade efficiency of the PTA, as long as it was in the best interests of the children. You know, that pothole on Main Street sure's been bugging me. Yes, uh, little Jenny tripped over that stupid oak in the middle of the park. It really needs to go. This thing about taking the Ten Commandments off the steps of the library? Well, that's against freedom of speech. Yeah! No one in Williamsville understood the juvenile justification system better than Helen Bentliff. And so it was this particular Tuesday, dressed in her exquisitely modest coral bisque cardigan, that Helen Bentliff launched her newest crusade, the battle against the town mill. <clears throat> now, as you all know, the town mill has been out of commission for as long. Well, as long as I've been here. And in that time, all it has done is sit, fester, and glower at us with its ugly, filthy brick facade. Now, I pray you mothers have had the sense not to take your children within a mile of that place, since I know for a fact that unsavory happenings take place within the auspices of its barbed wire fences. And I'm not just talking about broken glass and asbestos here, women. I'm talking about... <laughs> What is it? I don't know. Drugs! And sex! <gasps> yes! I know that some of our troubled sons and daughters... Oh, I don't know whose. Certainly not yours, Denise. Well, they've strayed into bad ways in that place. Why, there are condom wrappings everywhere, and graffiti depicting profanity, drugs, and sexual images! <gasps> How does she know all this? Shh! And after dark, when all of us good people are in our homes with our families, creatures that don't dare show their faces by the light of day go there to make shady dealings. Creatures like Mr. Lovely. Oh, goodness, sweet heavens. Now tonight I say to you, this must come to a stop. The mill cannot be allowed to poison our town any longer. We demand that it be torn down. Yeah! That it be torn down this instant. Yeah! And that we build a new shopping area in its place. Yeah! Yeah! And who's gonna make it happen? Joe, Joe Williams. Williams! Or we'll have his head! Yeah! All right, go get him, girls! Oh, yes! Go. We're gonna go get him! Go. Go. Sufficiently satisfied with her impending victory, Helen smiled as she walked out of the middle school, confident she would hear from the mayor before the night was through. It didn't take long for the landslide to hit. Watch as the male praying mantis approaches the female with an elaborate dance before assuming his mating position on her back. He's hardly aware, however, that she's about to tear off his head. <sighs> With the male's head removed, she slowly begins to eat the rest of his body. Williams residence. Now I'll have you know that your position on the mill is It's practically insane the way you're going on It didn't take long for Joe Williams to figure out what was going on. You see, Joe Williams had a very simple system for responding to crises in Williamsville. One call? Forget it. Five calls? Uh, let me know how it turns out. Ten calls? I'll put someone on it. Fifteen calls? We understand the situation and are responding accordingly. But 20 calls? <laughs> 20 calls meant one of two things had happened. One, a flood had taken out Main Street. Or two, 
code level PTA red. <sighs> Joe had dealt with problems with the PTA before, but this, this was 23 callers. This was a code Bentliff. Put the coffee back on, Judy. It's going to be a long night. It had already been a long day for Michael Burbank. He had suffered the endless ignominy of another day entering the figures of feed sales and negotiating with upset ranchers about recent changes in the pesticide policy. After rereading the opening paragraph of Anna Karenina 14 times, he stared out the window and realized tonight was the night. Tonight he'd burn the library down. While it's safe to say that Michael Burbank would have enjoyed Fahrenheit 451, he had, of course, never read it. He had, however, read the Anarchist Cookbook, and on this fair late September evening, he hauled a bag of fertilizer, a jug of homemade napalm, and a Zippo lighter to the steps of his 40-ton albatross of his existence. At last, I'll be free! <laughs> oh no, not cold feet! Though he despised her, he couldn't help imagining the face of Mrs. Jaworski, the librarian who was the bane of his existence, and the best friend of his mother's. Sure, burning down the library to rubble would get rid of his late fees, but what if it got rid of her? What if she moved to Florida with all the other old women and left him to fend for himself with his mother, the queen mother of guilt herself? Oh no, she'll spend more time visiting me. No, Michael thought, the library had to stay. I'll just burn something else. While Michael Burbank prowled the town looking for an appropriate place to practice his pyrotechnics, Abby Tweeter was finishing up what most of us try not to think about, sexual relations over the age of 65. Oh my. Sign seal delivered. <laughs> We've had some special times this last year, Fred, but that was something special. How you just clutched me and didn't say a word. <sighs> Oh, why don't you sigh with me, Fred? 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 It didn't take Abigail long to realize that Fred had delivered his last package and now had a first-class ticket to the great post office in the sky. Oh, Fred. Now I have to find a place to put your body. As Abigail contemplated the necrophiliatic turn of her love life, Michael had chosen the next place to dump his guilt. And napalm. Lovely's Motel was an interesting intersection of two worlds, far enough away from town to allow for nearly uninterrupted trading of illicit goods and services, but close enough to ship an unwanted in-law during an extended visit. Tonight was business as usual at Lovely's, and as Michael Burbank crept through the unlocked back door and onto the faded pink linoleum, he heard voices just ahead of him. So, we have a deal? I've grand and unmarked bills, honey. I, I dig it. Glad to do business with you. Yeah. Real piece of pie. Be there in an hour. Don't be late. If there's one thing I never am, Mr. Lovely, it's late. Of course not. Just keep that, uh, little nose up in the air. Never know what you might smell down here. Good night, Mr. Lovely. Michael froze in the hallway, hearing half of the conversation and filling the rest in with inference and common knowledge. Figures. Bitch had to be on something. It was then that Michael realized that Lovely's motel wasn't appropriate for his fiery vengeance. What was left of his Catholic upbringing assured him that this place was headed to hell anyways. And besides, Rick Lovely had connections. Providing he survived the blaze, it wouldn't be long before he'd take Michael out. Isn't there any place I can burn down around here? Across town, Fred Stoops was fully dressed. 
His hair was combed, his eyes closed, and he smiled with a secret he took to the grave. All in all, Abigail Tweeter thought he looked extraordinarily comfortable as she slammed down the trunk of her Oldsmobile. At least, as comfortable as a corpse could be. Oh, Fred, you're so handsome. But why not wait until you got home to die? As Abigail Tweeter adjusted her rearview mirror, she briefly considered calling the police. No crime was committed, she would say. Save the crime of love. Yet, it wasn't the police that Abigail was worried about. It was the opinion of the neighborhood. When you're this close to the grave with your reputation intact, you can't throw the race. No sense wasting 73 years of good manners on a dead postman. And as Abigail Tweeter set out to accomplish her morbid deed, Helen Bentliff was walking into her living room, just in time for the phone call she'd predicted. Hello, Bentliff residence. She flicked through the day's mail as the voice hesitantly came on the line. Ah, uh, yes, uh, Mrs. Bentliff, this is Mayor Joe Williams. Oh, Mr. Mayor, what an unexpected surprise. Yes, um... <clears throat> I suppose it is. What can I do for you, my dear? Well, uh, you see, uh, I heard about the PTA meeting tonight. Oh? What part? Um, well... The candy bar fundraiser for the marching band? Because it is going so well. Those kids just love their Mr. Good Bars. I'm very happy for the band, uh, but that's not it. Oh? You see, it's just that I heard uh, some citizens are concerned about the town mill. Really? Well, I do remember the matter being under discussion. I I'm just calling to let you know that I'm aware of the matter and doing everything in my power to work on several possible solutions that will, uh, well, resolve the problem. And none of them resemble your stupid proposal to revitalize the dump? No, uh, of course not. Well... It's truly titillating to hear that, as representative of the people, you take our concerns to heart, Mr. Mayor. Don't mention it. There's just one thing. Yes? Well, I, I thought I might impress upon you to make a few phone calls to alleviate the fears of the voters, uh, uh, townspeople. Me, Mr. Mayor? Why is that? <sighs> Surely you know that you're looked upon as a bit of a figurehead in the town, Mrs. Bintliff? I'm sorry, I thought that was your job. I just thought you could call off your, uh, <clears throat> assuage the concerns of your fellows in the PTA. As soon as I see it in writing, Mr. Mayor. Good night. Good night, Mrs. Bintliff. With that, Joe Williams the 11th popped two more tums, and Helen Bintliff's omnipresent smile spread wider across her face. This time, however, it was true joy that shone on her cheeks. The joy of vindication. Having slipped the mare into her back pocket, tucked her children into bed, and dusted the living room for the second time, Helen grabbed her car keys and an inconspicuous manila envelope from a top cupboard and headed out five minutes ahead of schedule to meet with the town drug dealer. She had clearly never heard that you always wait for the man. It was a clear night with a full moon, and the gutted interior of the old mill seemed to glow. Though the center of the main room was mostly clear, the edges were stacked with everything from shattered glass to bricks, smashed televisions, and microwaves. Used condoms, cigarettes, and beer cans littered one end to the other, causing Helen Bentliff to twitch. She almost regretted that she wouldn't have the chance to mop, vacuum, and dust the place prior to its demolition. 
As she sat in the dark room, savoring her victory like she would an exquisite filet, she had no idea how right she was. It was ten minutes after their appointed meeting time that the biggest piece of trash appeared, his Hawaiian shirt flapping around him like a cloak. He snubbed out a cigarette and walked confidently into the main room of the abandoned mill, where Helen Bentliff sat in the shadows humming, You Are My Sunshine. Evening, Helen. It's rude to keep people waiting. Yeah, well, uh, I had some uh, <clears throat> unexpected business. I see. So you have the money? Of course I do. It's been a long time since I gave this much cash to abroad. Please mind your tongue, Mr. Lovely. I'd hate these photos to make their way onto the desk of the Williamsville coronet. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Here's your dough. So it's all here. I gotta ask, though. How'd you manage to write photos at just the right time? Oh, just luck, Mr. Lovely. I'm a member of the Neighborhood Watch, of course. And I just happened to belong to the Williamsville Photography Club on the side in my free time. I was working on a shoot of your rather infamous landmark and just happened to capture some of its more compromising moments on film. <clears throat> so you did. And what do you need the money for? Oh, I consider it a gift from the Almighty towards Davies Harvard Fund. As Rick Lovely fought to not think too hard about the logic computed in Helen Bentliff's head, a battered Oldsmobile rolled up behind the mill. Perfect. By the time they find you, I'll be long gone to Florida. Oh, I've missed the sun so much. It's nice there, Fred. Why, it'll only be days of sunshine and iced tea until we reunite to laugh over God's junk mail. <sighs> okay, here you go. Sweetcakes, you just committed a felony too. I didn't do it. Hello? Abigail Tweeter wasn't one for profanity. In fact, she doubted she'd used a naughty word since 1976. But sometimes the situation warranted it. Fudge bumpkins! Is someone there? Well, it wasn't a mouse, Helen. Abby Tweeter? For the first time in her life, Abigail Tweeter was at a loss for words. Oh. Hi, Helen. And is that the mailman? Uh, well, of course it is. He wasn't feeling well, so we... Now, wait a minute. Didn't I just hear Mr. Lovely? Yes, you see, there's a perfectly logical explanation We're, to this. Uh, well, inspecting the place. For the demolition. We're on the committee. Demolition? It was at that perfectly awkward moment that Michael ignited his first fertilizer bomb. In the confusion, Helen grabbed Abigail and threw her over her shoulders like a running back. This lasted as far as the nearest awning, which collapsed in a fiery heap as they approached. Helen stood in horror as the flames leapt in. Hey, you idiots! Over here! They couldn't see Lovely through the plumes of smoke, but they staggered, coughed, and gagged until unexpectedly strong arms grabbed them and threw them through an open door and out into the night air. Helen lurched forward, almost trampling the old lady, and as quickly as relief swept her body, she realized her pockets were just a little lighter. Hey, Rick, the money! Catch you later, Helen! Rick Lovely ran, high on life for once, 
the incriminating photographs burning to a crisp, and the five grand in his back pocket. He was moments from leaping into his town car and careening to freedom when another blast lit up the September night. Oh! My entire stash was in there! Without saying another word to each other, Helen and Abigail got in their cars and drove home. <laughs> Three weeks later, Williamsville was essentially back to normal, save for an unexpected disruption in mail and a sudden surge in the rehab clinic's popularity. Abigail Tweeter was looking at nice Florida retirement communities. Ah, oh, well, this looks nice, don't it, Fred? Helen was the chairwoman leading the cleanup of the mill. From the ashes, Williamsville will rise again. She had meanwhile begun taking pottery classes, joined Oprah's book club, and been named Mother of the Year by the Coronet. Joe Williams was cruising into another uncontested re-election, and for the first time he had nixed the I put the Williams in Williamsville line. The people of this town are on fire. Yay. Rick Lovely had found his way into the next sleaziest business, cell sales. Oh, uh, this one's great, and it's only got a three-year contract. And Michael? Well, Michael didn't feel guilt anymore, not even around his mother. He even had the gall to enter the library and say, Hi, Mr. Jaworski. Hi, Michael. He took out the same book he'd taken out 18 times before, The Idiot's Guide to Cooking. He found the reading the different oven temperatures relaxing. No, Michael never felt guilty anymore. After all, in one night, he'd done more than the mayor had managed in four years. Tradition. Yes, it was tradition and its cousin routine that kept the wheels turning in Williamsville. And happiness? Well... Happiness was always in the running for next year. Tales from Williamsville was directed and produced by Frederick Greenhalgh. Story by John Coons. Adapted for audio by Frederick Greenhalgh. You're John Coons, the narrator. Corey Anderson is Michael Burbank in Announcer 2. Rachel Stoltz is Mrs. Jaworski in Announcer 1. Kate Gutchis is Abigail Tweeter in Mother 2. Mia Perrin is Girl and Mother 1. Stacey Ann Strang is Helen Bintliff. And Nathan Amidon is Rick Lovely and Joe Williams the 11th. Original music composed by Tony Micho of Little Melodies, LittleMelodies.com. Supplemental music from SoundRangers.com. Sound effects by SoundDogs.com and recorded live. For more information on Final Rune Productions, go to www.finalrune.com where you can listen to all of our previous stories, see the upcoming lineup, and read more about the art of audio drama. That's www.finalrune.com. Thanks for listening. All right, and that was a double feature of Final Rune Productions here on Radio Drama Revival, radiodramarevival.com, uh, finalrune.com, F-I-N-A-L-R-U-N-E.com. And of course, that's my own production company and to hear how far we've gone since 2007 you can check out uh, other shows at finalrune.com i'm also soundcloud.com forward slash finalrune um all right uh hundreds of more hours of programming at radiodrumrevival.com dig through the archives or hit up one of the uh, sort of landing pages by genre there is another way to dig through the archives um see what's out there um and of course you can follow us on twitter at radiodrama facebook.com forward slash radiodrama revival um find us on itunes stitcher or soundcloud and um Tell us what you think. Um, so that's the story. I'll catch up with you next week. Radio Drum Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhelge. Copyright of individual shows remains to each individual producer, but do please share this show as far and widely as you like. Radio Drum Revival originates at WMPG-FM Community Radio here in Portland, Maine. It is podcast at radiodramarevival.com. It's a labor of love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in, and have a great week. Mm-hmm.